Hey everyone, this is Philip Jackson. I wanted to pause before the lessons in this series to note the significance of infertility and what we're trying to accomplish with these lessons. Infertility affects one in four couples in developing countries, and that means about 48.5 million couples experience some sort of infertility worldwide every year. According to Scientific American Magazine and the World Bank, the worldwide fertility rate has dropped by 1% per year since 1960. Some scientists believe that it's the greatest threat to the survival of the human race. Given its significance and the amount of people that are affected by it, I believe that this is a subject that the church cannot continue to ignore. This is one of the most significant issues of our day, and we must do everything that we can to understand it biblically. This small series is intended to help couples who are struggling with these issues to understand what God's Word says. It's not just about conception and miscarriage, but more importantly, what God has to say to them directly. This study is not meant to be a medical resource, but rather a theological lens for us to consider the great gift of children and the different roles that God has given us in His kingdom. In this lesson, I discuss several of the most prominent fertility treatments available, as well as a biblical framework to evaluate them. As science continues to make advances in modern medicine, it's important for every believer to have a proper understanding of what God has said, not just in raising children, but also in our mindset toward their conception. Let's get to the lesson. There's a couple of things. Uh, let me do this to kind of get us set up for our discussion today. One of the, the first things is I want to remind you that um, Scripture tells us, remember that, the, that the, the consequence of sin or the wage of sin is death, right? And one of the ways that that uh, affects us is physically. Um, and one of the, the practical ways, we've looked at the curses in Genesis chapter 3, one of the practical ways is that uh, sin affects our physical bodies and our, um, our reproductive system, right? Um, every single stage of our physical development is going to be affected by sin in some way, whether that is in conception, gestation, and birth, or whether that is throughout life we develop cancers and get sick and all these things. Um, one of the things that has been um, interesting through the course of study is um, there is this thing called epigenetics. I don't know if you guys have ever heard of that term or not. Epigenetics is the, um, is the expression of specific genes uh, within a human being during uh, conception and through the gestation process within a mother. Okay, so essentially think about it this way. These are, these are things that aren't affected. They're, they don't affect, affect DNA, but based on the physical condition of a father and a mother at the moment of conception will essentially um, create um, ways that that child expresses certain genes within their chromosomal code. Okay, so for instance, that could be something like a proclivity towards anxiousness or anxiety. It could be a proclivity towards a certain addiction or different things. There's a study that was, was done many years ago about a, a village, I believe it was in Norway, they began to notice in the 90s that there was an overwhelming number of people that were overweight uh, in this little village in Norway. For some reason, everybody was overweight. Everybody. And they went back and through the course of research, they began to realize that during World War II, there was a famine in that specific village. And f over the course of five to ten years, everyone was surviving on less than a thousand calories a day. And as a result, all of the children that were conceived within that window, their bodies had an abnormal absorption rate of calories from everything that they ate. 
So not only were these, were these people, they were eating regular diets, but what that was manifesting in them was their body was literally thinking it was starving all the time. So their genes had been programmed in gestation to absorb more calories than the average human. So epigenetics is one of the, one of the reasons why you see addictions run in families, you see certain um, habits run in families, things like that. So when it comes to the conception and the, and the growth of children in utero, this is something we need to consider. Um, even though science has given us a better understanding of how the human body functions, um, even with those scientific breakthroughs, there's still some things that we need to be thinking about because there's some ethical dilemmas that come up with how these things are expressed. Um, a couple of, of statistics here that the most common type of infertility uh, around the world is miscarriage. Um, it's the spontaneous loss of pregnancy before the 20th week. Um, anything after the 20th week is considered stillborn. Um, experts estimate that between 10 and 20% of pregnancies end in miscarriage. So it's a, it's a very common thing, so one in five children. Um, in recent years, something that is um, concerning as well is a study uh, by Blue Cross and Blue Shield of America examined 1.8 million pregnancies in the U.S. between 2012 and 2018. And here's some of the things that they found. That there was a greater number of women who entered pregnancies um, with pre-existing conditions. Uh, the number of women experiencing both pregnancy and childbirth complications increased by 31%. Uh, that's just in a six-year period. Uh, women with pregnancy complications are twice as likely to have childbirth complications. And the number of women diagnosed with postpartum depressions increased by 30% in those six years. Um, we've already talked about that uh, the, the prevalence of infertility in the world, that the fertility rate globally has diminished by 1% every year for the last 60 years. That's something that's considered that is uh, um, significant. Um, some of the things that we're going to talk about this morning, I'm going to go through, I've chosen the, the top six or seven treatments for infertility, and we'll walk through some of those, what they look like in practice. But before we do that, I want, I want to lay things out um, Three main things to consider, okay? Uh, and I'll, I'll put the, the passages that we're going to read from in our, on our Facebook group. But um, we're going to start in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. So if you have your Bibles, turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. The first thing that I want to establish is that marriage is the merging of two people to become one flesh. Okay, uh, your conception of a child is something that is intricately involved in your relationship between the two of you. Um, anything outside of, of that one person, what, what one person does with marriage is going to affect the other person. Okay, There's no way that you can make decisions for yourself and not affect your, your spouse. Beginning in verse 1 of 1 Corinthians chapter 4, the Apostle Paul says this. He says, Now concerning the things about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. But because of sexual immoralities, each man is to have his own wife, and each woman is to have her own husband. The husband must fulfill his duty to his wife, and likewise the wife also to her husband. The wife does not have, full, have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband also does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. In the, uh, the chapter previous, Paul talks about how... 1 Corinthians. Did I say 2 Corinthians? I'm sorry. It should be 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Hey, all right. Yes. Everybody's like, wait, what do we... <laughs> okay, strike that. Reverse it. Three things to consider. 
Okay, marriage is the merging of two people to become one flesh. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, uh, Paul is talking about how uh, married couples are joined together. Okay, and there's nothing that, that uh, they're not independent of each other in any way. So he says in verse, starting in verse 1, he says, Now concerning the things about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. But because of sexual immoralities, each man is to have his own wife, and each woman is to have her own husband. The husband must fulfill his duty to his wife, and likewise the wife also to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband also does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. So the point of this that I want you to be thinking about is that as we process things as a couple, there is no such thing as independence. You may be divided on an issue like infertility or other things, but understand that, that, that when it comes to the sexual integrity of your marriage, there is no such thing as independence. This is one of the things that is, uh, is important to consider. Okay, the second thing I want you to think about is in Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews chapter 13. So, um, the second thing I want you to be thinking about as we process these things is that conception is intrinsically linked with, sexu- with a sexual relationship between a husband and a wife. Conception is intrinsically linked to your sex life. Okay, you cannot separate the two. In Hebrews chapter 13, verse 4, talking about the importance of community, uh, the writer of Hebrews says this. He says, Marriage is to be held in honor among all, and the marriage bed to, is to be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterers. Um, the point here is that our marriage beds are a sacred place. And this, this is not some, something for us to... A lot of times we separate fertility and the conception question from the intimacy of marriage, and we, we create a, a mathematical or a medical problem to be solved, and we remove the, the holy respect that we should have for our marriage bed. Okay, so that's, that's another thing to consider. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, uh, the Apostle Paul says this, talking about, um, well, we'll get to that here in just a second. Okay, let's do the third thing. There's a lot to cover. Turn over to James chapter 4. I know I'm going to be moving quickly. Uh, we'll do, I'll do my best to get you guys notes when we're finished. Um, James chapter 4. James chapter 4 is a famous passage of Scripture where the, uh, the pastor of the church of Jerusalem is writing a, church, writing a letter to all of the, the Hebrew Christians around the world. And he is, um, in chapter 4, he confronts this question about praying for things and not receiving them. And he tells them the reason why you're not getting what you're praying for is because you're praying with selfish and sinful motives. And at the end of that chapter, the culmination of that, he talks about how expectations, ungodly expectations, are what get in the way of us in our relationship with God. He specifically calls them out and says that they are not just um, evil, but they are idolatrous. This is idolatry. Evil, and in, in, uh, in all cases, are demonic. Okay, so starting in verse 13 in James chapter 4, James says this. He says, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow, for you are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, If the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. For for uh, so for one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it to him it is sin. A lot of people quote uh, verse 17 
And they, say, they, they apply that to the idea that God has told me to do something, and if I refuse to do it, now I'm being sinful. But in the context of James chapter 4, what he's talking about is understanding that God is the one who ordains everything. And for me to refuse to accept that and make my own plans, it's evil. And we need to remember that. So the third thing is we're processing these things is that ungodly expectations are an expression of idolatry. So let's talk through some of these different fertility treatments. The first is artificial insemination and intrauterine insemination. The process is pretty simple. In artificial insemination, sperm is collected and placed inside the reproductive tract during ovulation to help with pregnancy. If ovulation is normal, um, AI can be done without any additional fertility drugs, but some cases require medications to boost the chances of pregnancy. So one of the, one of the consequences of of sin is that it affects us physiologically as well as psychologically and spiritually. And so sometimes that means that there are hormonal imbalances, there are different things uh, physiologically that get in the way of conception. And so in order to um, facilitate that, uh, sperm is actually placed within the reproductive tract. Uh, Interuterine insemination is similar, but it's a little bit more complex. Okay, so what they do is they they collect the sperm and they, uh, they wash it they separate it from other seminal fluid, and then they use a catheter to place the sperm directly into the uterus as close to the fallopian tubes as possible to increase the chances um, of, con- of uh, conception. Uh, the success rate for artificial insemination is up to about 40% for women under the age of 40, um, and they, get, they typically get pregnant within uh, six tries. For inter- interuterine insemination, um, the success, race range, success rate ranges from 5 to 20%. Um, still not, not great. Average cost for both is about $300 to $1,000. Sometimes the procedures will be covered by insurance, but not always. One of the things about fertility treatment is that depending on your health care coverage, if you have insurance, um, some things are covered, some things aren't covered. And these can be incredibly expensive uh, in different things. Some things to consider about artificial insemination and IUI is that sometimes uh, if there are issues, for instance, remember we, we, we've talked about that not all infertility comes from the, from the woman's side. 50% of, of infertility actually comes from the man's side of the relationship. And so within the world, there is no ethical boundary. And so we basically are finding genetic material wherever we can find it to, to solve this problem. And so one of the things that is, uh, that is used in artificial insemination and IVF, we'll talk about that here in a second, is that they will take a donor sperm or donor eggs to complete the match, and then they will do the, the insemination. Um, I think that this crosses an ethical boundary because I think it violates the, the command of Scripture that our marriage bed is to be undefiled, that our sexual integrity is important, it's sacred. Um, I think it violates what... The writer of Hebrews said in, in verse 4, chapter 13, um, that passage talks about sexual integrity within our marriage, marriage, and since childbearing is a central aspect of that, I think to introduce another person into the conception of a child is going to undermine le- the legitimacy of your relationship. Um, because I think that it, uh, it can cause contention down the road and different things, and I think it just is not wise. Um, this is different than embryo adoption. We'll talk about that here in a second because the conception of the child um, in embryo adoption doesn't, doesn't leave one spouse out of the creation of that child. Um, typically, 
uh, AI is not useful for male infertility. That's an issue that happens before conception. So, um, yeah, the next, next one is in, uh, in vitro fertilization or IVF. The process of IVF is a woman will take a hormone injection or, or a series of hormone injections to condition her body to release multiple eggs. Uh, typically, that's uh, around 10 or so. As opposed to in a normal cycle, a woman will release one or two eggs for fertilization. So essentially, you inundate the body with hormones that causes multiple eggs to be released. Um, and these eggs are then fertilized in the lab and then later implanted in the uterus. Um, IVF can be an option for those dealing with severe fallopian tube blockages, uh, ovulation problems, diminished ovarian reserve, poor egg quality, um, polycystic ovary syndrome, endometriosis, or insurmountable sperm deficiencies. So essentially, if you have um, complications in the mechanics of the egg moving where it needs to go to be conceived, um, IVF can be an option for people who have those issues on the, on the women's side, but on the male side as well, if there's a low sperm count, um, doctors can essentially concentrate um, the, the genetic material from the man and increase options for, um, for, for insemination there. The success rate for uh, IVF, it depends on the woman's age. Um, around 54% of women under the age of 35 uh, will be able to conceive. Uh, around uh, 26 to 40% of women 35 to 40 will be able to conceive. Um, and then around 4 to 13% of women over the age of 41. IVF is expensive. The average cost is between fifteen dollars and $25,000 per cycle. Um, and uh, currently 19 states require insurance plans to recover or to cover some sort of, of fertility treatments. Uh, 13 specifically include IVF. So some things to consider about IVF um, is that sometimes uh, multiple fertilized eggs will be implanted. It can cause multiple pregnancies. So you'll end up with twins or triplets or even more. I don't know if you guys remember a number of years ago, there was a woman that was famous called the Octomom who ended up with eight pregnancies at one time, which was just really, really unsafe for her. But she carried all, all eight children to term. Um, if this process has started too late in life or too many embryos are created, there's a possibility that some of them will not be used by their parents, which causes a, a, a moral dilemma uh, because the woman is not able to carry them Essentially, her, her body, the clock runs out before they're able to use all the children. Um, or uh, more eggs are fertilized in the short term, but the first round ends up taking. So, for instance, think about this. You, you, you fertilize 10 eggs, and you think, well, we're probably going to lose 50% of them through this process. But the first one takes, and you have a baby, and you realize, wait a second, there's you start doing the math of the time that you have in your fertile lifetime. Like, I've got nine more eggs to carry and not enough time to carry them. So it creates a, uh, a dilemma. Um, one of the things that you should be considered of with IVF is, that, uh, is how many eggs that you have fertilized. Um, as you prayerfully consider as a couple the size of your family, um, something that you should definitely consider is, that, uh, is to not create more embryos than you have the number of children that you wanted to, that you desire, and also um, make sure that you don't. Um, some people make the decision because of financial means to fertilize more eggs than necessary, and what that does, biblically, biblic, from a biblical standpoint, is that creates more lives than you are able to, to to handle. And from my perspective, that's bad stewardship. Um, 
Another thing to consider is that hormone shots are, common, hormone shots are commonly needed for IVF um, before harvesting. This can affect your quality of life and your relationship because hormones matter. Hormones are real. Um, another thing to consider is IVF is a voluntary um, procedure and it's expensive. If a couple believes that God has led them to undergo IVF, um, my challenge is that you don't violate your responsibility as financial stewards to do that. Um, this is not a decision that should be made in, um, in desperation. It should be something that is carefully and prayerfully considered um, because we got to remember that um, the Lord is the one that opens and closes the womb. And if we violate these ethical boundaries, um, we will be held accountable for that, especially, <coughs> excuse me, especially if we, uh, if we end up becoming, you know, there's, this, there's a term called being house poor, where you buy more house than you can afford, um, or car poor, where you have, you know, you live in the double wide and you have the Ferrari in the driveway. Um, there's something else we need to consider financially, the cost of some of these procedures. Um, if, you, if you neglect your calling in ministry here so that you can chase the idol of children over here uh, because you put yourself in a financial risk, that is something that you should stay away from, in my opinion. Um, other risks of IVF. Um, there's a theologian from a number of years ago named Oliver O'Donovan uh, who identified a couple of risks with IVF. He said there's an in, there, this is a what's called an enhanced risk. Natural pregnancy comes with obviously assumed risks, right? Your body undergoes a number of changes as you grow a child. But IVF is one of those things that you electively uh, do. One of the things that is, uh, that is challenging is that in the, the process of going through IVF, there's not a consideration made to the habitability of, of being able to carry a pregnancy, and so it puts the mother's life in danger or it makes their quality of life um, that much worse to where it puts them in danger and the child in danger. So this is, an, this is something that is not just a natural risk but, a, but a, um, an enhanced risk. Um, another thing is to think about the... These are just things to consider. I'm not, I'm not taking a position either way on IVF. But um, there's a lot of, of uh, artificial mechanisms that are involved in IVF. There are, there are specimen gathering and fertilization and freezing and storage and handling and implement, implementation, not to mention the use of specialized equipment. There's a lot of things that have to be done correctly in order for this to work. And um, all of these things increase the potential for complications, not just with a pregnancy, but also with a child, but also with the mother. So... Um, be very careful about that. Another thing that I want you to consider is the idea of unchecked expectations. We talked about um, chasing after things that, that only God is in charge of, right? And trying to take ownership of those things. Um, expectations and ungodly prayer requests can lead to conflict. It's one of the things that James talks about in his letter in chapter, in chapter 4, is that... Um, we need to remember that these decisions that we make, if we make them from an ungodly position, we create conflict down the road. What might be a, um, a decision for today that doesn't seem like it has that, much, that, that heavy of implications can end up putting strain on our marriages and fracture our relationship with each other. So just be very careful about how you approach these things. The next thing is we're going to talk about natural cycle IVF. Natural cycle IVF is um, 
similar to, to regular IVF, but it is essentially in vitro fertilization, and they bypass, bypass the hormonal injection phase. Okay, so instead of, instead of fertilizing 10 eggs, what you do is you, um, you allow the woman to release her regular allotment of eggs for her cycle, and they take those one or two eggs, maybe three eggs, and, um, and, then, and then conceive in a lab and then, and then plant them back in the uterus. Uh, the success rate for this is 7 to 10%. The average cost, it can vary, but natural IVF can cost up to $7,000 less than traditional IVF. So we're looking at between probably three dollars and $15,000. Um, but one thing to consider is that given the lower success rate, it often takes several rounds to be successful. So if the hormonal injection piece is something that, that you deem inappropriate for, your, for you and your situation, um, even though it's $7,000 less typically than, than traditional IVF, um, usually it takes several rounds to do it. Some things to consider on natural IVF is um, since it, uh, it avoids the, the hormonal piece, it may be appealing to you. That may be something that you might consider. Some women are only able to have one egg retrieved from traditional IVF, so that makes things more expensive and can make it more difficult. Um, since the procedure retrieves just one egg, there's no risk of multiples. That's one thing that is different than IVF. Um, and uh, the associated complications of having those things, so having more than one embryo uh, in uh, being created at a time, that may be a, a more appropriate place for you. And then another thing is that by skipping the hormonal injections um, and only having one egg retrieved, it's going to drastically reduce the, the possibility of pregnancy. So just know that, that the success rate is much lower. The, um, the fourth option is embryo adoption. We actually have a couple here at Evergreen who has done this. Um, Kyle and Casey Doherty have done this. And the process is that a potential birth mother undergoes fertility treatments to prepare her body to carry a child. And then one of these leftover embryos from someone who has done IVF, they put those embryos up for adoption. And um, essentially a mother is matched with an embryo. And then the embryo that naturally, um, the embryo that has already been created gets placed in the mother. So this is a way to redeem those children that are sitting in a lab somewhere. Um, typically, they transfer one to three embryos at a time. Uh, the success rate is about 50% um, for pregnancy and about 40% for birth. So it can be a, a good option. The average cost in most cases, um, the total expenses are for the first dozen embryo transfers. It's what's called FET, um, which comes to about ten to $12,000. Uh, the first transfer, if the first transfer is unsuccessful, you can come back for more attempts. The total expenses for those subsequent attempts, uh, they're significantly less. They're around $44,000 a piece. Some things to consider about embryo adoption. A lot of people don't, aren't familiar with embryo adoption. It's something that uh, is fairly new, and it, it comes from our tradition of faith um, because we believe that life begins at conception, is that uh, embryo adoption doesn't fall, even though the word adoption is used, the way that our loss, our, our uh statutory system is, has been created, it doesn't fall under adoption law. It falls under contract law or civic law, civil law. Um, and so it means that once the embryo has been donated, it is essentially, from the world's perspective, genetic material. So it's no different than you donating plasma or blood. So once it's been given, 
um, then it's done. You don't have any claim to it anymore. That means that if you carry an embryo that you've adopted, um, there's, no, there's no risk of, of the parent coming back and trying to get the child. Um, it can be a good alternative for those for couples uh, who can't conceive naturally on their own and also a good option for the couples that are not able to use all of the embryos that have um, been created through IVF. This is a, this is a good option. Um, some theologians consider the, le- the legal status of embryos that are up for adoption as problematic because it basically reduces them to property. So uh, it's akin to slavery. You know, you're trading a person back and forth for money. Um, this is an ethical consideration. Uh, most embryo adoption agencies are for profit, which means that, they, that money is being made to pay for their staffing and also to, to grow their business. So that's one thing to consider. Um, and for some people, you know, this is, uh, this is really difficult for them. This is a, this is a, real, this is a moral stand that they're not willing to take. Um, I don't agree with them on that. I think if these children don't, if they've been created, they need a place. I think God has created them on purpose. And I think that embryo adoption is actually a fantastic way for us to be able to, to redeem those children. Um, and uh, the reason why I say that, actually, I didn't plan this, neither did he, but pastor's going to be preaching on this passage of Scripture in James chapter 1 this morning. Um, and it says, in cha- in starting in verse 27, um, starting in the last several verses of chapter 1, he says, Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of God and our Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained from the world. In other words, there's no greater expression of faith than to take in a parentless child. So I believe that embryo adoption is a great, a great option when it comes to infertility. Um, the fifth, the fifth uh, fertility treatment, I guess, is donor eggs and donor sperm. This is the process of a donor contributing their, uh, a woman contributing their egg or a man contributing their sperm. Uh, to create an embryo in a lab, and then implanting that into the uterus, similar to IVF. Essentially, you borrow the reproductive material from another person to create a child. And then you implant that child into either yourself or your wife. Um, the donor can sometime, can be someone that, you, that the couple knows. It could be someone that they're matched with anonymously or through an agency. They're actually... Um, in these agencies, you basically have a portfolio that you can choose from. They have a genetic profile for all of the different donors, and you can say, well, this person has, you know, blonde hair and brown eyes, and, you know, they're this tall, and they come from this background, and, yeah, I would love to have a child that has blonde hair and brown eyes, and essentially you're shopping in the catalog for your child. Uh, the success rate for this is around 50% uh, with fresh uh, eggs that have been donated, um, and around 40% for frozen or donor eggs that are used. The average cost for using a do, uh, an egg donor or a sperm donor is fifteen to twenty-five thousand uh, dollars plus additional costs because you have medical care for your uh, for your donor and the legal fees and all those things. Um, most donors are paid for their eggs um, and their sperm. Women are paid more than men are because um, because eggs are more rare than sperm is, um, and compensation can be you know di- different. Um, between a couple of hundred dollars to several thousand dollars for for the donor eggs. Um, this typically isn't covered by insurance. Now, some things to consider about this. Um, now, here's the thing, is that the the world doesn't have an ethic when it comes to these types of things. For the world, this is just a mechanical problem to be solved. And so we need to remember that even though 
things are possible. It doesn't mean that all things are profitable. So some things to consider about this is that if you use a donor egg or donor sperm, your child is not going to be related to you biologically. Um, but you're still uh, listed as the birth mother or father on record. Um, since you're dealing with someone other than your spouse, I, spouse there's legal considerations because uh, many couples will hire an attorney early in the process to make sure that, they're formal, that there's a formal contract between them, their donor, and the agency that waives all parental rights. You, you introduce someone else into your marriage bed, and it can make your life incredibly complicated. Um, I do not think this is good stewardship. Um, these contracts are out that, that also outline that any children born from the donated eggs legally belong to the received parents. Um, if traditional IVF cycles haven't worked, donor eggs can also be the next step for women sometimes with a low egg count or poor egg quality, which is more likely after the age of 40. Um, and I'm just, this the, still blows my mind reading all this. Um, one of the things to consider is because of, because of epigenetics, the conception of that child, uh, you're introducing what, they, what the agency or what others think that they know about that person at that point in life whenever the, that, uh, that material was collected. Um, there are all kinds of unknowns that you don't know about that you should be considered of because you're introducing someone else's culture into your home. Um, honestly, this is just another form of surrogacy that is uh, we've talked about earlier uh, with the story of Abraham and Sarah. And the, the biblical perspective about this, I think, is pretty clear. I don't think this is appropriate in any way, in any way um, from the way that I've read the text and the way that I understand God's word and how he views conception. I don't think that this is um, anything that a, that a believer should seriously consider. Um, <clears throat> I want to read a passage of Scripture. So t- turn over to 1 Corinthians 6. 1 Corinthians 6 is um, another piece where he is, uh, the Apostle Paul is talking about um, talking about relationships within the family, particularly between um, a husband and wife. And uh, let's see. Beginning in verse 12, he talks about this idea of whether or not, even though things are possible, not all things are profitable. Okay, starting in verse 12, he says this. He says, all things are lawful for me, but all things are not helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. Foods for the stomach and the stomach for foods, but God will destroy both it and them. Now the body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God both raised up the Lord, and will also raise up um, by his power. Do you not know that your body, that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot? Certainly not. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a harlot is one body with her? For the two, he says, shall become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. Verse 18, flee sexual immorality. Every sin that a man does is outside the body, but he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? For we were bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. 
So here's my point. Is that if we, if we disconnect the conception process from the, the, the sexual piece of our relationship with our spouse, what we do is we defy what God's Word says. Everything is connected to, to, to that piece. And we can't say, oh, well, yeah, I know that me and my husband are having these difficulties, so we're just going to figure it out in the laboratory. Or I know my, my uh, husband is struggling with this, so we're just going to do this to kind of circumvent this problem. They're intrinsically linked. We can't get away from it. And to introduce anything that is outside of our marriage into our marriage, whether it's a, a donor egg or a donor sperm, I think it violates the conscience of Scripture. That leads to the, to, uh, the last couple here. The first is, is surrogacy. Surrogacy is similar to IVF. Um, the old school way that they would do this is they would actually introduce someone into their marriage bed, like we saw with the story of Abraham and Sarah and Hagar. Um, but today it's a little bit less, less uh, rudimentary. They do, they do a process similar to IVF. An embryo from both parents is implanted, so you have a bio mom and dad who are the married couple. They fertilize the egg in a laboratory, and then they implant it into another woman who will carry the child to term. Surrogacy is typically used by couples who want a biological child but can't carry it. Maybe it's a hostile environment of the mother. Maybe it's a low sperm count or a lack of potency from the man's, from the man's side of things. But um, it's carried by a third party. This is typically used by gay couples or women who can't sustain a pregnancy. Um, they don't ha- or maybe they don't have a uterus or they have a special medical condition that would make pregnancy dangerous or impossible for them. Um, one potential thing here is is uh, my I have a, a family member who is uh, is married to a woman who is epileptic, and it's incredibly dangerous for her to be pregnant. Um, and so um, they uh, they did have two children naturally, but um, after their second child, she almost died, and and so he uh, he underwent a vasectomy just for her for her, her own safety. But um, in cases like that, that would be a situation where a woman might consider surrogacy. The success rate for surrogacy is just like any other pregnancy, uh, around 50% or around any other, like any other IVF. It's around 50% when the egg comes from a woman under the age of 35, uh, but that can drop below 10% if the donor is over 42. The average cost is a lot because not only do you pay for the lab fees and the fertility costs, but you also have to pay for the prenatal care of the carrying mother. So it can be anywhere from $10,000 to $100,000 or more. Um, it's a lot. And then you also have legal fees because um, uh, the surrogate also might choose to keep the child. There's some issues there. The law isn't completely clear. So even though she carries the child and you may have everything lined out in a contract, there's still some gray areas of the law, and so things aren't as clear as you might want them to be. Um, some things to consider is that uh, parents of the child are going to have a genetic connection to the baby, but the surrogate um, will also, because what the way that epigenetics works is it's not just about the conception of the child that affects their genes and how they're expressed. It also is determined by how the mother carries the child. Um, this is why pregn- different pregnancies uh, act different ways. And think about, for instance, what we know is the birth order. A lot of what the birth order comes from, in my opinion, comes from the mother who carries a second child is a different person than the mother who carried the first child. And, and successively, as the children are carried, they take on different character traits and different things are, are expressed in them differently. So 
Um, that's just something to consider. Um, another thing is surrogacy is an intensely emotional process that can take a year and a half or more, um, not just for the surrogate, but also for the, the parents of the, chi- of the child. Um, there's all kinds of issues with this one, honestly. Major legal aspects. Um, it's in the best interest of the parents and surrogates to have a contract that spells out everything, the parental rights, but even there's issues after that. Surrogacy is currently illegal in some states, and some states don't recognize surrogacy contracts anymore, so that's another issue. Um, not to mention that just like the scriptural objections raised in regard to IUI, uh, AI, and IVF through extramarital, extramarital means, introducing a secondary individual into the gestation of a child is morally, ju- in my opinion, just egregious and ethically wrong. Um, not to mention that there's multiple examples in scripture where surrogacy is denounced by God. So, I would take that idea. I know that nobody probably is thinking about surrogacy seriously, but my opinion is that it is should never be considered even in the slightest way. Um, <clears throat> I know there's a lot here. The second to last is egg freezing. Um, 10 to 12 uh, of a woman's eggs are freezed in this process. What they do is they, um, the idea is you take eggs when you're f- young and fertile and you freeze them and kind of hold them in a savings account until you're ready to have children and then you pull them out of, out of storage and then you fertilize them and then you plant them in your uterus. That's essentially how this works. Um, because as the woman ages, her eggs are, they diminish in quality and number. Um, the number of, the God, the amazing thing is how God has put our bodies together. You ladies are incredible. It's absolutely amazing. There's like, when, when you go through puberty, there's like a million eggs in your body. And by the time you get to your 30s, they drastically start to, to diminish. Um, so typically, they'll, they'll be frozen in your 20s or early 30s and then, um, and then planted later on. The success rate for egg freezing is 2 to 12% for women who are under 30 when they freeze their eggs. The older a woman is when she freezes her eggs, it's going to drastically reduce. So, like, think about this. If you're starting at 2 to 12% in your 20s, by the time you're in your 30s and 40s trying to carry a child, it's going to be even more problematic. So, um, cost is between nine and $20,000 for retrieval, and then you've got to pay for egg storage, which is an additional probably $500 to $1,000 a month, or maybe even higher, or sorry, per year, depending on the location where your eggs are stored. The process is rarely covered by any healthcare plans. Some things to consider about this is that this procedure can be useful for women who are undergoing cancer treatments. I know I have a good friend who uh, his wife was diagnosed with cancer, and um, they underwent this process, um, and it causes complications when you're going through radiation treatments and things like that. It could be a viable thing for ladies who are undergoing uh, some medical treatments like that. Um, it can also be a good option for those with a family history of early menopause or endometriosis or ovarian cysts. Um, <laughs> because you're dealing with the, the physical consequences of, of sin on your body. Women in their 20s and early 30s have the best chance of retrieving their, their eggs and freezing them. But just like IVF, um, egg freezing requires hormone injections, so that's something that is should be considered because that obviously affects your quality of life. Now the last thing, fertility drugs. Um, the process here is our bodies are like complicated machines right? And by default, because of sin, because of epigenetics, the way that things have, the way we are physically, there are natural things that can go wrong. Just like there is nothing wrong with you taking an aspirin for a headache or a, uh, a Tylenol for a headache or an ibuprofen for swelling, 
there is nothing wrong with you taking medications for any kind of medical situation, right? I have the same stance on this as I do with, for instance, with mental health. If you have a chemical imbalance in your brain, you need to be taking medication. That is no different than us going to see the doctor and having surgery to fix ourselves, right? Now, when it comes to um, fertility drugs, I think that there is um, something to just, just to consider because it's easy for us to uh, to take these medical breakthroughs and try to seize control over what God is in charge of. And we need to be very careful about how we process those things and how we obsess over them. It can be every, anything from taking um, oral medications to taking shots to different types of things. Um, the success rate for just taking drugs and, and acclimating the body to be... Um, Hospitable for conception is about 20 to 30 percent, depending on the medical situation and the drugs that are used. The average cost is around $900 um, if you pay out of pocket. Uh, fertility drugs are usually covered by insurance, but not always, um, and it depends on what kind of health care plan you have. One of the things that, uh, just to consider about this, about this option, is that just like with any other hormonal treatment, there's a risk to the quality of life and your general health. Um, anytime that you start adapting and changing your biochemistry, there's going to be natural effects to you, but not just to you. Remember we talked about how you're, you are connected with your husband. Husbands, you are connected with your wives. And have you ever been around your spouse when they are moody or upset? It tends to affect you, doesn't it? Right? The reason is because we are joined in one flesh. So these, these decisions aren't made within a vacuum. Um, some women experience side effects like bloating, nausea, headaches, mood swings, breast tenderness. Hormone shots also come with a slight risk of ovarian hyperstimulation syndrome, where the ovaries become swollen and painful. Um, fertility drugs increase the odds of multiples. That's another thing. Um, and since they, can, since they cause two or more eggs to be released at a time, it uh, just things makes things more complicated. Now, I know that this is a lot of just reporting to you, and I'm not really getting into a lot of text here. But I want to encourage you in these three things. We, this is kind of the, a summation, kind of wrapping up everything we've talked about over the last five weeks. But um, remember that being a parent is about how God has chosen to express himself through us. Right? Just like we shouldn't be, um, we shouldn't be angry or anxious about how God is choosing to gift another person spiritually or gift another person in their in their lifetime and how they are they're being used for the kingdom we also have to be sensitive that God has given us a unique role to play no matter what that might be and we can't resent others for how God has chosen to express himself through them we also can't belittle how God has chosen to express himself through us there is there's an incredible gift here and how God has uniquely chosen to express himself through us. And we should be very careful to not diminish that gift. It's a very sweet thing to know that God cares about us so much that he would intentionally do that for us. Um, I hope that this has been, has been helpful for you. Um, I just want you, you all to be um, circumspect in how you think about your future together as a family. Don't think that because your family doesn't look like what you think a family should look like, that it's wrong. And don't take the frustrations of sin on you um, and think that it diminishes your value.
one of the things I was thinking about on the way over here this morning is that um, sin has a way of corrupting us, right? And um, for the world, there's no purpose in grief. It's just, I hear somebody, somebody said, I, I read the other day that, that grief is essentially love that's unspent. And I appreciate that sentiment, that thought. But the word says that as believers, we don't, we don't grieve like the world grieves. We don't suffer like the world suffers. Because we have an eternal context about how things work. And the Lord's not ignorant of our struggle. In, in Romans chapter 8, he says that all of creation groans under the weight of sin. And yet, all of the, in all of these things, um, he, he, uh, all things work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. And then he goes on this long diatribe about how nothing is going to separate us from the love of God. Be encouraged by this. That no matter if your family is just the two of you, and you love on all the children around you, or whether your, your, your family is humongous, God has chosen a specific role for you to play in the kingdom. And what your family looks like um, is God's to determine and not yours. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to like and subscribe to our content. We are available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you find your favorite podcasts. The Married Now What podcast is a ministry of Evergreen Baptist Church in Tulsa, Oklahoma. It's meant to be a resource for in-depth Bible study for couples striving to build their lives on the truth of God's Word. For more information and additional lessons, please visit our website, evergreenbc.org.